What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord.
And so you finally are going to come to a place where you're obedient, where you're soft-hearted, where you're going to listen to what I say. I'll just keep sending plagues. And so now we come to chapter 10, where we have the eighth plague. Let's see what we see in verses 1 and 2. Now the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants, that I might show these signs of mine before him. That you may tell in the hearing of your sons and your sons' sons the mighty things I have done in Egypt, and my signs which I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So here for the second time in this whole account of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, we see this term God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And just like last time, it's that same Hebrew word speaking of to solidify or strengthen. And so the sixth plague comes. God solidifies, he strengthens Pharaoh's heart, and, and so Pharaoh continues to be hardened. The seventh plague comes, Pharaoh chooses to harden his own heart, and now we see that God chooses once again to solidify that choice that Pharaoh has made time and time again. And then God gives a reminder of the purpose. Well, why am I doing this? Not only why am I sending these plagues, but why am I willing to solidify this choice of hard-heartedness of Pharaoh? Well, God says, ultimately the purpose is that as the people will get to see my power and know that I am the Lord. So God doesn't stop Pharaoh from being hard-hearted. Instead, he says, hey, I'm going to allow this. I'm going to solidify this. Why? So that it gives me more opportunity to demonstrate my power to this world. Now, last chapter, we saw God revealing a broader purpose in sending plagues and doing what he's doing. The initial purpose was, hey, I want all of Egypt and Pharaoh to know who I am, to know my power, to know that I am the Lord. And God has done that. People have started to recognize that. People have started to see that. But then last chapter we saw that actually it was more than that. God said, not only do I just want Egypt, I want all the earth to be able to see this, to be able to know this. And we noted that that's something that takes place generations after this. You know, all the way in Samuel, 500 years later, we see the Philistines referring back to what God did in Egypt. People are remembering this. The world has heard of this. But now we see an even broader purpose, not just Egypt, not just all the world, but notice here we have something else as well. God wants future generations to know this. Notice he tells Moses that you may tell it in the hearing of your sons and your sons' sons the mighty things I have done in Egypt. So God's saying, I don't just want the Egyptians right now to see this. I don't just want the world right now to hear about this. I want future generations, your sons and your sons' sons and, and beyond that, to be able to know what I have done here in Egypt. I want it to be something that people speak of so they remember the kind of power that I have. And that purpose has been fulfilled. Even to this day, the nation of Israel remembers what God has done specifically here at this time. Passover, which we're going to be looking at next week, we're going to be looking at the fact that they keep looking back all the way to this day. They're looking back at what God has done. And even tonight, we are fulfilling this and looking and remembering what God did here in Egypt. Verse 3. So Moses and Aaron came into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory, and they will shall cover the face of the earth, so that not, no one will be able to see the earth. And they shall eat the residue of what is left, which remains to you from the hail. And they shall eat every tree which grows up for you out of the field. They shall fill your houses, the houses of all your servants, and the houses of all the Egyptians, which neither your fathers nor your fathers' fathers have seen since the day that they were on the earth to this day. And he turned and went out from Pharaoh. So once again, we see this similar pattern. Moses is sent by God to give Pharaoh a message, and it's a message that over and over he's heard, let my people go. But I think it's interesting here, God has a question connected with this message that he hasn't posed yet to Pharaoh. And notice what 
question is, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? You see, now that it's coming up to the eighth plague, God is bringing up Pharaoh's main problem. His problem is an issue of pride. When are you going to humble yourself? When are you going to stop being prideful and fighting against the God of all the universe, a God who has proven to be more, more powerful than you, more powerful than your false gods? How long are you going to refuse to humble yourself before me? This is Pharaoh's main issue. The sin of pride is what's causing him to harden his heart. The sin of pride is what's causing him to disobey God continually. The sin of pride is what's causing himself to allow his country and his people to be plagued, to be destroyed. And ultimately, it's the sin of pride that's going to lead to his death. You know, pride is one of the worst sins there are for many, many reasons. But you know what? The biggest reason why pride could be listed at the top is because pride is the thing that keeps people from relationship with God. It takes a step of humility to accept that you're a sinner. It takes a step of humility to accept that you need a Savior. It takes a step of humility to recognize and accept what Jesus did for you on the cross. You have to be humble in order to receive that, to accept that into your life. But the people who have pride, they're not willing to humble themselves, they're not willing to recognize their sin, they're not willing to recognize their need for a Savior. And in that prideful state, they continue to reject the only way to salvation. And sadly, if they die in that prideful state, they're going to hell. This is why it's such a danger, such a dangerous sin to have. Satan's big sin issue was pride. He wanted to be like God. He had a pride issue. And it led to so many other sins, and that's why pride is so problematic. But the greatest sin it leads to is the rejection of Jesus Christ, which leads you straight to hell. Now, for those of us who have accepted Christ, we took a big step of humility. It was wonderful to come to that place and say, you know what, God, I admit that I'm a sinner. I recognize what you say that I am. I understand that I need a Savior, and I accept you. That was a huge step of humility, which enabled us to have a relationship with God. But you know what? Now that we do, it doesn't mean that we're no longer susceptible to pride. Pride doesn't now keep us from heaven, but it can hinder our relationship with Jesus. Well, we're now going to heaven because we've accepted Jesus, but yet still our pride can keep us from having the kind of dependence, reliance that is necessary for the depth of relationship that God wants to have with us. John 15, 4 and 5, Jesus said, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Jesus says something here that it just goes in the face of any prideful person. Without me you can do absolutely nothing. Well, in my pride, I don't believe that. In my pride, I believe, well, well, Jesus, maybe without you, there's some things that I can't do, but surely I'm capable of this, and, and I'm capable of that, and, and oftentimes I'll even try to prove it. Oh, look, Lord, look at me do it. I'll do it. I'll prove to you that I'm capable. And the only thing I prove is what Jesus says is true. I'm not. You're not. Without him, we can do nothing. He wants to bring us to that place of complete dependence, of complete reliance. But that mindset goes against our pride. Our pride says, I can do it on my own, Lord, I don't need you. I don't need anybody's help. I'm sufficient in myself. We fall into this sin of pride and we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. We start depending on ourselves instead of God. That brings a huge problem in our relationship with God. And a huge problem in our effectiveness for God. Pharaoh's pride and the destruction that is not just bringing on him personally, which we're going to see is going to get even worse all the way to his own death, but the destruction that it brings on all those that he's in charge of should be a huge warning to us of the devastation that pride will bring when it keeps us from obeying God. 
And this is such a warning. Here's a man who allows his pride to keep him hard-hearted. His pride keeps him from obedience to the Lord, and it brings such destruction. James 4, 6 says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In this verse, there's two wonderful statements. The second part is the one that we love. Oh, God gives grace. We all want God's grace. It's so wonderful. But notice what it's connected to. Who does he give his grace to? The humble. Well, what does he do to those who are prideful? He says he resists the proud. I mean, when you think of all the things that you don't want from God, this should be one of the top things on your list. I never want God resisting me. But God says, I will resist you when you're prideful. I will resist you when you're in that state because I'm not going to allow you to think that you can do it without me. I'm not going to allow you to live your life that way. I love you too much. I will resist you so that you can come to the realization of what Jesus said. Without me, you can do nothing. And then once you humble yourself, I'm going to pour my grace upon you. So God gives Pharaoh the same message, let my people go. But as every single play comes, it's a new warning. This new warning is, if you don't, if you decide to harden yourself once again, if you decide to not obey once again, well, guess what's coming this time? I'm going to send so many locusts that you won't even be able to see the earth because of them. They're going to be everywhere. And they're going to eat everything the other plagues haven't destroyed. There have been a lot of destruction so far, and the hail destroyed a lot of things in the last plague. And God says, whatever's left, these locusts are going to eat soon. So now you got a choice. Will you listen? Will you obey? Or will you be hard-hearted like you've been? Now we see something very interesting here. After this warning from Moses to Pharaoh that you have a choice to make like you've had seven times before this, we're going to see the servants of Pharaoh get very bold. And they're going to come and they're going to speak to Pharaoh. And I want you to know what they say in verse 7. And Pharaoh's servants said to him, how long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet know that Egypt is destroyed? Here we see Pharaoh's servants come to Pharaoh. They're fed up. They've experienced seven plagues of misery. And they're like, Pharaoh, you're the one making decisions here. You're the one who won't let him go. Pharaoh... Let the Israelites go. And notice what they help want him to see. Do you not yet know that Israel destroyed Egypt destroyed? Have you missed it? Have you missed what these seven plagues have done? And why are you still keeping them here? Their God has power, and he is just destroying our what used to be amazing country. Well. Pharaoh has a chance to say, you know what, you're right. Let's do it. Let's be obedient. Let's just stop this destruction. Let's give in and obey what the God of Israel is telling us to do. Now, I think this change of heart that Pharaoh's servants had is very important to note here. Because remember at the end of last chapter, we're told something, uh, chapter 9, verse 34, and when Pharaoh saw that the rain, the hail, and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet more, and he hardened his heart, he and his servants. So remember, he's like, oh, oh, ask God to, you know, I, I, want, I want to be forgiven. And then the hail stops, all right, forget it. I'm hardening my heart again, you're not going anywhere. But notice he's not the only one who chooses to harden his heart. His servants, after the end of the last play, also chose to harden their hearts as well. And also, I want you to note something. At the start of chapter 10, Moses says, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants. So after that plague, they chose to harden their hearts, and then God says, hey, I have solidified the hardness of heart that not only Pharaoh has, but also these servants. Now here's the thing I want you to note. They've had a change of heart. They've now come to Pharaoh and said, you know what? It's time for these people to go. Yeah, we were hard-hearted. We were against this. And we're even told that God solidified that. But notice that God solidifying their hardness of heart did not keep them 
from choosing to soften their heart. It did not be, it wasn't something where God's like, ha you're never going to be able to soften your heart now. I'm going to just keep you hard-hearted for the rest of your life. No, he just solidified the choice that they made. It didn't stop them from making a different choice, which they do here when they come to Pharaoh and they say, hey, it's time to give in. It's time to stop this and let the Israelites go. So the fact that they can choose to soften their hearts reveals another thing. So can Pharaoh's. Even though God has solidified the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, he can still choose to let the Israelites go. But let's see what he chooses. Verse 8. So Moses and Aaron were brought again to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go serve the Lord your God, who are the ones that are going to go. Moses said, We will go with our young and our old with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds, we will go. For we must hold the feast of the Lord. Then he said to them, The Lord had better be with you when I let you and your little ones go. Beware, for evil is ahead of you. Not so. Go now, you who are men, and serve the Lord. For that is what you desire. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. So Pharaoh's servants had come, they pleaded with him, hey, it's time to let the Israelites go, and so after having this, Pharaoh calls for Moses and Aaron again, and he asks them a question. Who are the ones that are going? Oh, you should already know the answer to this one. Who are the ones that God has asked to go? All of them. But he doesn't want to let all of them go. He's never wanted that, so now he's like, well, who are the ones that you're going to take? Answer that to me, and then maybe we can you know, make a, a deal here as to whether or not you guys can go. And Moses responds with, everyone's going. The young people, the old people, and all of our livestock. Well, Pharaoh's not happy with that answer. He does not want everyone to leave. And he basically says, the Lord will certainly need to be with you if you try to take your little ones along. I'm never going to let that happen. Only the men may go. That's his response. Now notice, we see what he already tried to do before, which is compromise. Remember before when he finally came to the point, he says, fine, you guys can worship God, you can sacrifice your God, just do it here in Egypt. You can't go out to the wilderness, you can just stay here. And that's my compromise. And God says, no, uh, I'm not compromising with you. Let my people go where I told them to go. Alright, fine. You can leave Egypt, but you just can't go very far. You can just kind of go to the outskirts of the, you know, right where the wilderness of Egypt touched, you can go there. No. I'm not compromising with you, Pharaoh. So twice already we've seen Pharaoh try to compromise with you know, how this is going to happen. And now he says, right, fine, God, you're a hard bargainer, but I got something for you. Your men can go all the way to where you want them to go and sacrifice. The women and children, though, livestock, they're staying alive. You know, this is something that I think is just an unfortunate reality that we have with God. And it's comes from pride. Whenever we think that when God tells us something, that we can stand in this place of negotiation, or that, that's really interesting, Lord, that you want me to do this. But how about we, uh, how about, you know, kind of compromise here, and I just give half of that to you. You know, you can have half of it. Isn't that okay? You know, this is kind of the, the mindset that Pharaoh has. Or, you know, well, I know you want me to go all the way here, but what if I just stay here in Egypt and, and do it instead? You know, we're always having this concept of like, it's okay when God asks for us to obey him to come back into this negotiation, which as soon as the arrogance that we have that we think we should ever be able to say, all right, Lord, it's a yes or no. Are you going to obey or not? Well, it's not yes or no. I mean, it's going to be a, in between. You know, like we got to kind of you know, negotiate here. I can't do exactly what you want. I mean, that's a little too much for me. So how about we do it this way? How about I just give you half of what you want? You know, won't that make you happy? No, it won't. And sometimes we, we convince ourselves that, hey, if I just give him half of what he wants, surely that's better than nothing. God said, no, I want complete obedience from you. But too often, this is the way it is in our life. Lord, yeah, you can have this area. You can have that area. But I want to keep control of this area. And this area over here, yeah, that's something that he still, you know, I'm not giving that to you. There's an interesting story that's written about our life being like a house, and it's kind of a longer story, but it's elaborate. You go into each room, and it's like, oh, here's this really clean living room, and oh, Lord, you can have this. I cleaned it up for you. Here it's yours. And, you know, then the bedroom, and then the kitchen, and 
of a sudden there's a closet that's full of junk, and oh, you can't have that. You can't even go into that room, because that's the stuff I, I kind of really, I don't want to give up yet. I still want to hold on to. That is still something I want to keep a hold of. So let's go back in the living room. I clean that up for you. You can stay there. You can have that. It's all yours. But this, this room's mine still. And this room over here, yeah, I know I put a lock on it because I don't want you ever going in there. Yeah, this is mine. This is my stuff. I, I'm, I'm not willing to give that up yet. And sadly, that's kind of our life sometimes with the Lord of you can have this, you can have that, but there's too much of it that we're not willing to say, here, it's all yours. You paid for it. You bought me with a price. And I'm giving everything I have back to you. Well, Pharaoh, he only wants to give parts. He wants to compromise. It's something we need to understand. God doesn't compromise with us. He's not going to compromise with Pharaoh. He doesn't compromise any time in Scripture. He just said, obey or don't? What's your choice? And sadly, too often, our choice is love. Verse 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every herb of the land and all the hail that and all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his rod over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind on the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. And the locusts went up over the land of Egypt and rested on all the territory of Egypt. They were very severe. Previously there had been no such locusts as they, nor shall there be such after them. For they covered the face of the whole earth, so that the land was darkened. And they ate every herb of the land, and all the fruit of the trees which the hail had left. So there remained nothing green on the trees, or on the plants, and the fields throughout all well, does God accept Pharaoh's compromise? The men can go, okay, locusts! The sending of this play is God's answer to Pharaoh's compromise. No, I'm not compromising with you. Let my people go, all of them, and all the livestock with them. That's what I've asked of you, and that is what I demand of you, and until you submit to that and obey, you're going to keep receiving the consequences of disobedience. And now we have another one. And to show us God is not playing around, He doesn't play around with us either. He does not compromise with us. Here's a video clip depicting this plague of locusts. As you can see, there's so many of it that you can't, oh, you missed this back before this one. There it is. Now, 
just like with the other plagues, this plague of locusts is a specific attack against another false Egyptian god. The Egyptians worshipped Set, who was their god over crops. He was supposed to have the power to watch over and make the, the crops grow bountifully. They would offer you know crops to him and expect that you know their harvest would be huge because of it. And so they trusted him in this. And now the fact that everything's destroyed, hey, Set, <laughs> how come you didn't protect the crops? What's going on? How come you allowed this to happen? Well, once again, it shows he's powerless against the power of the true God. Well, let's see how Pharaoh responds to this plague in verses 16 through 20. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in haste and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, please forgive my sin only this once and entreat the Lord your God that he may take away from me this death only. So he went out from Pharaoh and treated the Lord, and the Lord turned a very strong west wind, which took the locusts away and blew them into the Red Sea. There remained not one locust in all the territory of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and did not let the children of Israel go. Well, once again, like we've seen in the past, we hear these words that sound so repentant. That sound like, oh, this is finally where we want to see Pharaoh get, I have sinned, please forgive my sin and take away this plague. If someone comes to you with that, oh, I've sinned against God, I've, I've done this, please pray for me. Like, oh, wow, they're really repentant. But you know, repentance isn't seen by what people say, it's seen by what they do after they say those things. Because repentance, as we mentioned before, is different than being sorry. It's different than just expressing words. It's a turning from something. So if someone comes and says, oh, I've sinned, I'm so sorry, oh, I'm going to change, and then there's no change, well, that's not repentance. That's just words. that have no real meaning based off of what they've said. And that's what we've already seen with Pharaoh before. He's already made these statements before. But once the plague goes, his true colors come through, and he doesn't do what he says. Oh, I'm ready to obey. I'm ready to repent. I'm ready to submit to this God. Great. Then I'll pray. And we'll have this plague removed. Oh, the plague's gone. Consequence is gone. All right. Nope, I'm not letting Israel go. Nope, I'm not going to do what you say, God. I'm not going to obey. This is once again what we see with Pharaoh, but we also note again, another time, God solidifies the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. He made these choices over and over again, and God just solidifies that choice. But we also noted, it doesn't stop Pharaoh from making a choice to soften his heart, just like his servants did. But Pharaoh chooses to stay hard-hearted, and he will not let the Israelites go. And the pattern continues, okay? Time for another plague. Let's see the ninth plague, verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which even may be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the children of Israel had lights in their dwellings. Now it's an interesting pattern, I don't know if you've noticed it, but after the third plague, well, the third plague came, no warning, no message. First plague, warning, message, nope, I'm not going to obey. Second plague, warning, message, no, I'm not going to Fine. Third plague just comes. There's no warning. There's no message. Let my people go. If you don't, that's what happened. God just sends a third plague. Fourth plague, warning, message. Fifth plague, warning, message. Pharaoh rejects both of those. Fine. Sixth plague, God just sends another one. Seventh plague, warning, message. Eighth plague, warning, message. The ninth one, God just sends it. For every third plague, God just says, you know what? I'm not even going to give you a warning or message. You've already shown your heart. He descends another plague. And this plague is a plague of darkness. How do we really comprehend the kind of darkness that really existed here? I remember when I was a teenager, uh, there's a mountain in Southern California called Big Bear. They had these big caverns. Uh, some friends and I went in. And once you go pretty deep in there, you make enough turns, there's only one source of light, and that's the light that you bring in, whether fire, whether flashlights, fluorescent flashlights. We all decided, let's turn them off. 
And I had never experienced that kind of complete darkness before in my life. I mean, I couldn't see my hand right in front of my face. It was just really weird to be in a place that dark. But you know what? The darkness that we see here wasn't just the fact that it was completely dark. There was a supernatural element to it as well, because we're told that darkness can be felt. And we're not really told like, what that means, but I mean, it could be felt. I mean, it was just crazy. But another supernatural aspect to this that had to exist for this to happen was that God would have to supernaturally not allow any light source to work. There's always darkness. Every single night there's darkness. Well, we'll just light our fire, and we'll have plenty of light. Well, that's not working. Because then it wouldn't be an issue. There wouldn't be darkness. What, this, what he says happens where no one can see each other, there wouldn't exist. All they would do is get out their torches, set their fire. So God had to stop anything from actually illuminating light and bring this darkness that could be felt. And it happens for three full days. Now, I want you to think about that. Because this would have been... Horrible, especially for families. Think about having your kids. We're told that nobody sees each other for these three days, and we're told nobody moves. Nobody gets up from where they are. I want you to imagine that. You know, wherever you are when this comes is where you're staying for the next three days. You know, if you're in your bed, you're probably in a better place than some, but you know, wherever you're at, the darkness comes and you're not moving. But imagine, you know, being a mother, being a father. Your kids are screaming. They don't know what's going on. They can't see you. All you can do is hear them. You can't help them. You don't even know where they are. No one's moving. They're just sitting there. It's kind of gross thing if you really think about the practical reality. You sit there for three days. You're going to have to use the bathroom. No one's getting up. They're sitting in their own urine, sitting in their own poop. I mean, that's just a reality as well. I mean, this would have been a disgusting time, but just they don't know when this is going to end. I mean, some of these plagues have lasted a little bit of time, and you know the darkness, especially being dark that long, it probably felt even longer than three days. They don't know when this is going to conclude, and the fear, and just the fact that it was felt, it would just been a horrible, horrible experience. Once again, another direct attack against one of the most worshipped gods of the Egyptians, which is the god Ra which is the sun god. He had power over the sun. He had power to bring light to Egypt. They worshipped him greatly. There is no sun coming up for three days. Ra, where are you? You're supposed to bring us light. What's going on? Oh yeah, that's just another one of your gods that has no power against the god of Israel. But notice another thing that's very interesting is the Egyptians are all in darkness. We're told all the children of Israel had light their lives. And I think this is such a great picture. A picture that shows the distinction and difference between those who accept Christ, those who believe in God, versus those who are unwilling to believe in Him and have rejected Him. You have the nation of Israel, those who are continuing to reject who God is, and they're dwelling in darkness. You have the nation of Israel who believe in God, dwelling in light. Jesus said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. That's one of the biggest things that separates us from this world. It separates us from what we used to be. We used to walk in darkness. This world still walks in darkness. But we no longer. We now have the light of life. We have the light of Christ. There's a huge distinction now between us and the world, and God says, I don't want that light just to be hidden with you. That's why he says, you're the light of the world. Don't hide your light under a basket. Put it up on a stand so that all can see. I want the world to see your light so that they're drawn to me. So after three days of darkness, Pharaoh once again calls on Moses. Notice the conversation, verse 24. And Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go serve the Lord, only let your flocks and your herds be kept back. Let your little ones go also. Let your little ones also go with you. And Moses said, You must also give us sacrifices and burnt offerings, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also shall go with us. 
not a book shall be left behind. For we must take some of them to serve the Lord our God. And even we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. For the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. And Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take heed to yourself and see my face no more, for in the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, You have spoken well. I will never see your face again. Again, we see Pharaoh wanting to compromise. The first one was, all right, stay here in Egypt. Okay, we'll go, but not too far. All right, fine. The men can go, but the women and children have to stay. Oh, goodness, Lord, you are such a hard bargainer. The men, the women, and children can go, but the livestock have to stay. I mean, really, you're going to get another plague over the livestock? You're not willing to let them go? No. I'm not going to fully obey. I'm not going to fully give in. I'm going to hold on to something here, so it's going to be the livestock. That's my final offer. Take it or leave it, God. Well, the response from God through Moses was, no, we're taking the livestock as well. Every livestock is going. Not one hook is going to stay because we need to sacrifice these livestock to the Lord. That's one of the purposes of why we are going. You know, I think it's interesting here, this statement here, not a hook shall be left behind. And I really think that's kind of God's answer to us. As we continue this, you know, compromise, we're often like Pharaoh here, alright, how about this, or I know about this, no, what about this? And with each time there's there's consequences, and so we keep coming back, and I said, no, not one hook. Not one little bit of compromise, not one animal stand. They're all coming. Everything that I ask for, I want. I want complete obedience. That's what I'm asking for, and that's what we need. Pharaoh's not happy. In his anger, he says to Moses, Get away from me, take heed to yourself, and see my face no more. For the day you see my face, you will die. I'm tired of you, Moses. I don't ever see you again. What do I do? If I do see you, I'm going Well, Moses says, It's going well. You're not going to see my face again. This is going to be the last time you see me, Pharaoh. Now, before Moses leaves, before he no longer is seen in the presence of Pharaoh, God has one final warning. One last thing that Pharaoh needs to know. One last opportunity for Pharaoh to make a choice. Pharaoh, are you willing to soften your heart? Are you willing to humble yourself? This warning is in chapter 11. Chapter 11 is only 10 verses. I'm not going to go super deep into it because chapter 12 kind of deals with the actual plague, which is just a warning of what's coming next. We're going to finish with chapter 11. Verse 1 says this. The Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. Afterwards, he'll let me go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here altogether. Speak now in the hearing of the people, and let every man ask of his neighbor and every woman from her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So God lets Moses know, Moses, there's only going to be one more plague. Moses didn't know how many plagues there would be from the get-go, but he did know the one plague that was going to turn Pharaoh's heart was going to be the death of his own firstborn. God revealed that all the way at the beginning, before he ever came to Pharaoh. Now God's saying, that final plague's coming. Only one more, and at this time, Pharaoh is finally going to let you go. Not only is he going to let you go, he's going to drive you out of here. And he's not just going to say, you know, you can leave. He's going to say, get out of here. I don't want you here anymore. I'm done with the consequences of me not willing to let you go. And then God has a message for the Israelites. He says, let every man ask from his neighbor and every woman from her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold. So God said, hey, I want you guys to ask everybody that's an Egyptian for gold and silver. And then he goes on to say, I'm going to give you favor. So they're going to give that to you. 
And we notice this because God actually mentioned this back in chapter 3. This is really a payment for the slavery that they've been in. They've been unjustly enslaved for a long, long time. And God's saying, now the payment's coming. You're not going to leave empty-handed. I'm going to make sure that these Egyptians give you silver and gold. And they're going to be quite happy. Because there's really, at this point in time, only one real person who doesn't want them out of Egypt. That's Pharaoh. Everybody else is like, please, take the gold, take the silver, just get out of here. We're, we're, we're tired of these plagues. We're tired of the consequences of you guys still being here. And we're also told the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. Notice that the people recognize Moses is great. Why? Because it's God's grace. But notice the one person out on this list, Pharaoh himself. The Egyptians see it, the servants see it, Pharaoh has still not yet come to that place. He's about to. But everybody else is like, we recognize who has real power. We recognize who has true greatness here. So Moses also has a message, not only for the Israelites, but also for Pharaoh. And it's one final warning, verse 4. And Moses said, Thus says the Lord, about midnight, I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant, who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the animals. Then there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as was not like it before, nor shall be like it again. But against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue against a man or beast, that you may know that the Lord does not make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow to me, saying, Get out, and all the people who follow you, after that I will go out. Then he went out from Pharaoh in great anger. So God has a message for Pharaoh. Final warning. One more plague's coming. At midnight, Pharaoh, I'm going to bring the worst plague yet. I'm killing every single firstborn. Notice who's at the start of the list. You. Your firstborn, Pharaoh, the one who sits on this throne, I will kill your firstborn, and I'm going to kill every single firstborn, even the, the women servants at the handmill, and not only the firstborn people, I'm going to kill the firstborn animals as well. And it's going to be so horrible that there's going to come out a cry through Egypt so great that there's been nothing like it before and nothing that will ever be like it again. But he makes an interesting statement, but against none of the children of Israel so a dog move its tongue against man or beast that you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. And many commentators believe that this statement is speaking of despite the calamity to come, despite this final plague that's about to happen, God would grant the Egyptians the ability to see who really brought this on them. He's not going to blame Moses. They're not going to blame the Israelites. They're going to blame the ones who's truly guilty, Pharaoh. And think of this. You're the, the political leader. And you know, hey, it's one thing as a political leader to be able to see bad news and bad things happening and blame it on somebody else. God saying, no, no, this time, your own people are going to turn on you. They're going to recognize it's you who've been doing this. You're the one who wouldn't let them go. And now this horrible catastrophe of our firstborn are dead because you wouldn't do what the God of Israel wanted you to do. Moses goes on to say, and when that happens, your servants will come to me and beg me and the people to leave. And then we're Pharaoh, you're going to lose your people. They're going to beg us to go. They're going to be desperate for us to leave. And that's the time that we're finally going to depart your punishment. After giving that message, we're told that Moses leaves Pharaoh's presence in great anger. Now we're not told why he's angry. You can make a lot of assumptions. I would think one reason would be Pharaoh just said, if you ever see you again, I'll kill you. Uh, I can see why that would make him angry. Or could this be anger in the sense of you are such a stubborn, prideful, hard-hearted person? Remember this about Moses. He lived here for 40 years. 
There has to be a part of him that loved Egypt, that loved these people, that did not like to see the catastrophe and devastation that was coming, and now he knows the worst of all is about to happen, and the fact that you're just so hard-hearted and won't obey God, won't let us go, is just so frustrating that you're not only going to have this happen to you, but all the Egyptians are suffering because of you. And so, there could be many reasons why he's angry, I'm sure those are some of them. I'd be very frustrated and angry too. Verse 9 and 10 ends with this. But the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not heed you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and did not let the children of Israel go out of his life. God tells Moses something, this is a sad reality. Yes, this warning is pretty severe. But I want you to think about this. Every single time that God has given a warning, he has followed through with it. Has there ever been crying wolf? Has there ever been, oh, I'm going to turn the Nile to blood? Oh, just kidding. Every time he did say he was going to do it, it's happened. And there's been nine horrible things that have come. And now put yourself in Pharaoh's shoes. You've just been told your own firstborn son is dying at midnight, and you have an opportunity right now. Get right, obey, let the people go, or else that's what's coming. And this shows how sad and how hard-hearted Pharaoh is that not even the death of his own firstborn or the death of all the firstborn in Egypt, not only people but animals, keeps him from coming to the place where he said, you know what, I'm going to surrender. I'm going to obey. I'm going to give in. God says, you know what, this final warning is so not going to get What a sad reality of how prideful Pharaoh is, how hard-hearted he becomes, that he's at a place where not only is he willing to do this to the land of Egypt, but even, which you hope he loved deeply, his own firstborn, to think, oh, it's not going to happen. <coughs> to think, well, every one of these things has happened. Why would he ever conclude this isn't going to take place? This is crazy. But he's still not willing to do it. And once again, we're told that God solidifies his heart heart. And he's going to not let Israel go. So that's the end of this long subsection of all these nine plagues. Which brings us to the tenth. We're told what it's going to be. We're going to move into the next section next week entitled Deliverance. It's my favorite section in the book of Exodus. It deals with the Passover, which we'll look at next week. A uh, great, great, great passage. I encourage you to read ahead. Any thoughts?